0: Brian, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Welcome to Millennial Manhood. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I've got O'Brien Woods on the phone or on the phone, on the recording with me. And it's been a second. Uh, he is the CEO of the Dorian Way. Uh, some folks listening may know of you or who you are. Uh, other folks may have no idea. So I always like asking folks just start out with uh, a 10,000 foot view of who you are, what you do, and what your story is. Okay, so
1: the 10,000 foot view is that my name is O'Brien Woods and I am and then I'm a managing partner of the Dorian Fund, which is a registered investment advisory firm that manages the Dorian Fund Group, which is a volatility hedge fund. So when you hear someone say volatility that just means that they trade options and that's what we do in my fund and i started the fund in back in 2013 and i've been doing that full time since i recently started another firm that is um a sister firm of the durian fund it's a completely separate firm but the the, um, the durian way has it adapted the trading philosophy of the durian fund to teach people how to trade individually to manage their own capital. So, um, starting a Doring Fund, I, it's, it's only a certain certain people who qualify for the fund. So it's a lot of people that are interested in learning about trading or investing their own monies. And the only way I can help them do that is to, um, start a mentoring firm. I couldn't help them by, um, by having them into the the dorian fund due to uh regulatory uh constraints and and i've also made that fund private so that's me in um, a nutshell for the most part i enjoy um, trading options that's why i started two option trading firms the dorian fund and the dorian way Um, Because I believe options are the most strategic instrument available to trade. Uh, I believe that you can make money irrespective of market direction when you are trading options. And um, you can act like a landlord. You can act like an insurance company when trading options. And when I say that, not to be long-winded, but just to kind of give you a viewpoint of why I love options, is that... Uh, when you when you're a landlord, you buy a property and you rent out your you can rent out that property monthly to, to gain monthly income. Or you can do the same concept when you are uh, if if you have op- if you have shares if you have hundred shares at least hundred shares you can rent those out by selling what is called a a covered call and you can do that monthly depending on the type of uh, um, stock that you have uh, shares with and as for insurance company an insurance company like geico or progressive they'll sell you a policy for like six months or something like that and you have to pay them a premium for that policy and they get to keep that premium regardless if you get an accident or not but if you don't then that policy continues to renew um, and you can do the same kind of concept with seven options you can sell an option to someone and receive premium into your account immediately and using the insurance example if they don't have an accident you get to keep all that premium and so I try to teach people how to uh, be the landlord and how to be the insurance company when when uh, dealing with options. So okay. no, no, I hope that uh, yeah, that's a, wasn't too long. Oh, sorry, go ahead.
0: No, I love that. Well, and so I'm I'm a super nerd. Uh, I'm in the you know this. I'm in the finance world and. Uh, so everything you said makes a lot of sense to me. But let me let me take it just a step back and and give give it a a, a little bit more of a broken down version to folks who aren't in the finance realm. Uh, basically, what's super fascinating about your role is like you said, you, you basically get to rent out um, your ownership uh, position within a specific stock or whatever it may be. And uh, a lot of folks they may watch mm-hmm. movies like Margin Call or Willful Wall Street and things like that, that, and they have they have no idea what's actually going mm-hmm. on behind the scenes. They're just watching the entertainment aspect of it. But like you said, it's, it's super fascinating. And for folks who don't understand what he means when uh, he says that you have to be a certain type of investor to be able to participate in, in his fund, uh, it's called a sophisticated investor. So basically, there's regulations in place around Uh, An income threshold that you have to earn before the government deems you a sophisticated quote-unquote investor or uh, other individuals who may not meet that income threshold, CPAs, CFPs, attorneys, et cetera, who are in a profession that would deem them a sophisticated investor. So uh, I think it's really cool what you said about you started the Dorian Way as a way to teach and help people, even though they couldn't participate in the Dorian Fund, uh, as a way to give back and just help teach people. Great question. What kind of started that? Um, I went several
1: years back, I believe in 2017, I went on this program called Tasty Trade. And um, after being on that program, several people contacted me to mentor them. And at that time, I wasn't interested in mentoring anyone. I didn't want to change my lifestyle. And I, 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 didn't, I didn't think I would be interested in mentoring people. So um, about a year later, I was... I was out a, um, a coast house, a family coast house, and my wife's aunt um, asked me to um, mentor or train her son how to trade options. So I didn't, I didn't want to say no to her. So I decided I would do it while we were while we were on that vacation and and see if he had the interest and if he had the interest, um, uh, the true interest, and not just by not just her forcing it on him. Then I would uh, I would teach him afterwards as well, but the process I enjoyed teaching him and around the same time one of the, the gentlemen that was contacting me previously for over a year he called again so I decided that I would I would mentor him as well and then after mentoring both I I didn't I realized that I really enjoyed the mentoring process so after about several months of doing that I decided I would start a meetup class uh, meetup.com so I, I set up a meetup.com um, site or uh, group in the houston area did the first event and the first event was amazing i thought i would probably have you know two or three people that was interested in options that would come out but um it was a, it was over 20 people who came out and um it's only grown since then so that, that was that was very very exciting to me so Piggybacking off that, I realized that there was a lot of people out there that was interested in learning about options, and I wanted to provide a free way for them to do it. So the Doring Way sponsors the meetup events. We do several different events a month, and the events are free, and we provide food for people and things like that, and we also do a webinar uh, once a month on the last Wednesday of each month, and that is also free for people to participate, and the the people can learn for free that way, but if they want to accelerate their learning process and so forth, then I obviously charge for one-on-one type of mentoring.
0: Yeah. So what you you mentioned that you didn't want to mentor people. You didn't want to really alter your lifestyle uh, and and dedicate the time, energy, energy, and effort that it takes into mentoring people. So what was it about mentoring him in particular that brought you to a point where you thought, man, it's actually really cool to pour back into people? And yeah, it's time and effort, but what was it that created that paradigm shift the way you viewed it? So the I think the
1: key was is that I was already following the market um, pretty much throughout the day. So when I was teaching someone at the same time, it didn't really um, interfere interfere with what I was doing. And then just the when the light bulb came on, when I presented a certain topic, and then i started actually learning from that person learning how to articulate the the uh, the option selling process the option buying process just options in general learning how to articulate that better it it um it fascinated me and, and it um, um you know sparked me to want to do it a little bit more and that's why i started to meet up and then just the meetup concept of it, it was amazing to um you know, teach people and then once again figure out how to teach people because options are a difficult subject to learn initially because the the terminology is so confusing uh, the type of things you, that you can buy and uh, buy and sell or sell and buy and things like that depending on the call or put it's uh, so many different uh, things that you can do with just two instruments just to put in a call but uh, so it's a, it's a, it's interesting and amazing to me and uh, it was uh, I guess you know it, it, it surprised me that I was it was actually interesting to to teach people. I thought that um, I was more of a loner you know, just um, following my you know following the, the, the fund that I manage and um, and spending time with family and things like that. And I thought that bringing um, bringing other people in would would, would uh, disrupt that, but
0: it didn't. So let's take a step back and just for everybody listening in the simplest way possible, and I know that might be hard. Because I I struggle with that as well Mm -hmm. with financial concepts when people ask me, because they hear I'm a financial advisor at a barbecue and they're like, oh, what should I do? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know your situation. Uh, (laughs) It's like like going to a doctor and be like, I got this itch. And then the doctor's like, well, I'm an orthopedic surgeon, so I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, In the simplest way possible, explain to the people listening what is a call and what is a put. And primarily, I want you to explain this because a lot of these terms are thrown around in the marketplace, uh, specifically used by the media to... Fearmonger, quite frankly, uh particularly 08, 09, 2010, uh, etc. And I think it's important for people to just basically understand what's going on, what are they? So in the simplest form, explain a call and a put.
1: Okay, so the simplest form I can do it
0: is so a call
1: is an instrument that you can that you can buy or sell. So and it's it's all based on, and this is going to be hard to uh, Explain to a degree because you're going to have to know some of the terminology. But um, if it sparks you into just Google what I'm talking about. Um, so, a call or sell and a call get the, the buyer right to, get to buy a share, buy 100 shares of something at a given price. You're looking to own Google and you decided that you wanted to buy, uh, purchase a call. Well, whatever strike price you purchase that call at, let's say you purchased it at eleven hundred dollars. Well, that gives you the right to buy Google at eleven hundred dollars. Gives you the right to buy a hundred shares of Google at, at one at eleven hundred dollars. If you are the seller, you have the obligation to sell at, if you just sell a call, you have the obligation to sell at the 11. Let's say if you sold that 1100 strike, you have the obligation to sell to the buyer if it exercises it's right. And that is is a little confusing, but that is the gist of a call. And the put is the same type of concept. If you're the buyer, you have the right to sell something. So if using the Google example, again, if you bought a put in Google, you have the right to sell Google at that put strike that you know what strike price is if it's 1100 you have the right to sell Google at 1100 100 shares of it or if you have several different puts it's a it equals 100 shares for each put that you buy if you are the seller at 1100 then you have the obligation to buy Google at 1100 if the buyer exercises the right so that's the basically that's the basic term uh, um, technical um, um, you know definition you'll read when you go to you type in um, putting calls in, uh, in Google but the way, I look, the way I like to look at it is, is basically that um, a place like, for example, to go put came around when or puts and calls came around when farmers wanted to hedge their crop. So if a, if a farmer had a crop that was going to be harvested several months down and they wanted to protect the price of that, that harvest. So, or that crop, then they would they would buy a put to protect the downside. So, if the price of, let's say, corn was going down, then that put would be able to protect their downside to a certain point, right? So, if uh, and and that's where the, the term the 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 right, but not the obligation, to sell something at the puts. Um, the strike, right? So the, 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 at the price that you buy. So the, the farmer, if the prices went down, then he would exercise his right, or she would exercise her right to buy the, um, the corn at a certain price, uh, so that it can hedge the, the, their, their crop if if it didn't go down and the price went up the price of corn went up then obviously they wouldn't exercise their their put right they would just let it expire and then they would make the money based on how much the corn went up so maybe that's a a a better understanding or a better way for people to understand a put and a call it's basically the same way on the on the opposite side when you're talking about a call um if the um if the you know the the farmer wanted to hedge the the upside, then they would obviously buy or call and they would once again have the right, but not the obligation to buy something at that point.
0: Yeah, that's a really good example. So basically for folks listening, all people are doing is they're, they're betting one way or another that a certain price will be hit. So that to explain the example of the farmer, let's say, uh, I expect, uh, my crop to sell at $10 a bushel. Or that's what I'm that's what I'm buying it uh, buying it at. So I'll pay ten dollars. I'll pay a dollar for the right to sell it at ten dollars. So if corn is selling at seven dollars a bushel for some reason, um, I still have the right to sell it at ten. But if it's selling at fourteen, I'll let it expire and sell it at the fourteen. Exactly. Yeah. It's it sounds a lot more complex than it is, but and it can get really into the weeds. But again, I think it's important to just understand. Um, you know how how it works and some of these financial concepts. So I know you're also a serial entrepreneur. Uh, give us a little background on that. So how did you end up, you know, going from one business venture venture to another? What's what's the background there? Have you always been entrepreneurial, or is that something that came about later in life? I
1: think it probably it came on pretty early in um, high school. I took a uh, I took an economics class in high school, and the economics teacher introduced us to stocks. And at that time, this was about 1993 and you had to look at uh, stocks. You had to follow stocks from the newspaper at that point because the internet was still fairly new. Most people didn't have it. And he showed us the movie, the first movie, uh, Wall Street, the first one. And that fascinated me. And I decided that one day I wanted to be a part of the markets. So I went out and bought my first computer. And at that time I started to um, day trade. And um, early in the 1990s, day trading was going on. It was big. It was it was it was a thing to do. People were um, liquidating their retirement accounts to to uh, go day trade at uh, at literally uh, day trading bucket shops. And people lost. uh, Most people lost all their retirement. And regulations changed. That's why they have what they call a a day trading rule. Now that you have to have at least twenty-five thousand dollars in your account to be able to trade in and out of something more than three times in a week, and so that was that was brought about by the the day trading craze um, of the the you know the internet uh, the, the internet bubble that was going on. But during that time, I lost a lot of money trying to day trade penny stocks. So that's all I can afford at that time. So I, I had to step back and just start buying stocks. So I started buying stocks and then throughout the process, I started to um, learn a lot more about, um, you know, own, owning stocks, fundamentals about stocks and then options and then options on futures and futures contracts and so forth. But in between that, I started a, um, a house cleaning business, a, a domestic service business in San Diego. That's where I grew up at. And me and a partner, we grew that house cleaning business to over six cities. And um, from that point on, we parlayed that into changing that that company into, we sold that company into an online, uh, to an online marketplace that was called BidMyCleaning.com. BidMyCleaning.com was the middleman between the provider of a, um, a provider of the services and the consumer of the services and basically you can put in your zip code and you'll see a list of different people who um, who who serviced your zip code and it had reviews and pricing you can schedule um, instantly and this was back in 2008 and I, I I jumped ahead, but before 2008, I did start, I was a part of a a healthcare company. I was a manager at a chiropractor and acupuncture company. And then that's when, after that, I jumped into starting my first business, which was the domestic service. So then we jumped into Bid My Cleaning that I mentioned, and uh, we tried to get some funding. It was in 2008, we got a little funding. But we couldn't get another round uh, because it was 2008 and things were going crazy. So it, it cost a, a significant amount to run a business like that. It was, it was similar to um, the problem that uh, Uber is going through now is that they have to have enough people wanting to request rides and they have to have enough people providing the rides. And to be able to do that, it's a fine balance and you have to spend a lot of money to, to be able to keep that balance. So I'm, sh- I'm sure in Uber's case now, most people know about them and eventually they'll be able to make a profit because the marketing and all that kind of stuff is going to be, uh, be a lot less because everyone knows about them. But that's the problem we had. We, we, we had to keep p- providers busy across the nation and we had to um, obviously market to consumers of it. So the cost of it was way too much. So we had to close down um, uh, bidmycleaning.com and then from that point, I was already um, trying to trade full time and was looking to actually move on because I was still fascinated by the markets and that's what I wanted to ultimately do. So I s- started the the, the Dorian Fund, which is a, which is a hedge fund, in 2013. After trading full time since 2011, and and then obviously I started the the Dorian Way late.
0: 2018. So, I have to ask this: How on earth? Okay, you run a, a hedge fund right now. How did you get into the cleaning business? <laughs> that's a good. That's a good question. I had a because I mean, quite frankly, you're a sophisticated dude, and nothing wrong with the cleaning world. Literally, nothing yeah. at all. But you don't strike me as a guy who goes into the house cleaning industry.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was a. It was a. It was a definitely a. Um, a turn down a different road and and you learn a lot about yourself when you're doing something that is not really uh, uh, meant for you um, not doesn't fit your temperament right but yeah um, my my business partner at the time he's he worked for this in this mutual fund company called Scudder Scudder was one of the biggest mutual fund companies back in uh, the, the 90s and so I wanted to start a firm with him because I was obviously into the markets and trading the markets at that time, but I was just buying stocks and things like that. And so I told him, I, I said, we're going to start a firm together and um, we're going to call it Acre and Woods. His his last name was Acre. My obviously last name was Woods. We're going to call it Acre and Woods and we're going to start this investment firm. And I had someone come clean my house. Um, just before I um, registered or um, just before we got incorporated. And for some reason, a light bulb popped up, popped up in my head and it said, well, you know, we can, it can easily manage or, or start a, a cleaning company. It's it's not that much overhead involved and uh, we can, we can build some capital to be able to uh, put into the, the an investment firm one day. And so went out and did that and. That that turned into a nightmare initially because it was it's you have to you have to hire people and you have to deal with sometimes low wage workers. And so you get a lot of turnover. You have to deal with customers that because cleaning is subjective. So what you think is good, they might not. And you have to deal with cars and insurances and, you know, every different thing. And and, and if you if you run in a, a cleaning business uh business, and you know, uh, you know, professionally, it it can be it can just be just as complicated as any other business, believe it or not. And starting in California with their workers' comp uh, requirements on cleaning companies, it was it was definitely a nightmare. But anyway, we did eventually figure everything out, grow it to six cities, and it it did uh, provide me enough capital to start a fund one day.
0: So it all worked out. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and by the way. The thought of starting a business in California sounds absolutely miserable. <laughs> you, you are not joking. Uh, just knowing, also another thing that sounds terrible about California is um, real estate investing. I would stay away from that place at all costs, mm-hmm. simply due to the fact of how the renter tenant laws work out work out over there. It's like people can basically just squat in your house or your apartment or whatever it may be.
1: Yeah, they don't they don't know it though. I mean, it's it's a bunch of people still rent and so forth, and it's, it usually works out. Um, I used to uh, have a, a a complex there and renting it out, and you know, sometimes you would have to go to court and things like that. And and I don't know the laws now; it's been a while. But you know, it uh, they could squat in your house for a while, and you had to go to you had to go to the court, and then you have the, the marshals come out and and remove them. Um, and that process could, you know, take a take a while. So I, I I think sometimes it was 60, 30, 60 to ninety days or something like that, if I can remember correctly. Um, so if you're renting there, you have to obviously uh, make sure that you have enough cash flow to be able to cover stuff like that.
0: So how many units did you own out there? It was eight units. Oh wow, that's yeah. a nice little that's a nice little uh, multifamily deal there.
1: Yes, yes, it was. Uh, it was. It was not too bad. Uh, probably probably so too soon though.
0: <laughs> so you mentioned that you learn a lot about yourself when you work in an industry that's not really designed for your temperament. What, uh, so what was the big thing you learned about yourself?
1: Man, I didn't, that's a good question. I didn't want to, I didn't want to, um, you know, answer that. <laughs> <laughs> that's why. Nah, because you, um, If you are the type, right? And this is me growing up and learning that, um, if you, if you're the type that somewhat cares about what people, how people view you and, um, regardless how successful you are, sometimes when some people hear that you run a cleaning company, right, they initially think that you are, um, uneducated and that you have small operation going and that, um. You know, it's nothing sophisticated about it. Right. And that used to to irk me. So and uh, so, you know, that is that's what that's what I mean, is that if you care about stuff like that, then it's it's you. It's tough to be in an industry that people look somewhat down upon.
0: Mm. You know, it's crazy because I've talked to Dr. clients of mine about this. So, you know, if you become an MD of some sort, you magically just fit into every neighborhood in America. Right. You've got DR in front of your name and MD behind your name. Doesn't matter. Uh, you, you're you accepted at every club, everywhere. And, it, you know, doctors make good money. You might have a doctor making three, four $400,000 living in a neighborhood where their next door neighbor is a guy who owns a construction company making $2 million a year.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and you would think the doctor is killing it over here. But in reality, the guy driving the F-150 pickup truck uh, or the... You know, immigrant driving a Toyota Camry with two million dollars in his bank account—they're the ones that are actually killing it. Um, It's—it's it's such a. Remind me of that book, uh, "The Millionaire Next Door." If you ever read it. Yeah, the millionaire next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I have. I've. I've uh, um. Millionaire next door is a great book for folks to read. Rich Dad, Poor Dad is a fantastic book for people to read. Um. That that contextualizes a lot of those mindsets around, you know, if you. If you care, um, what people think about you, it might hold you back to a, to a degree because value add is where the money's made. Um, and value add might not be super sexy, whatever that value add is. Like you were obviously adding value to people by having a cleaning service, even though it's not mm-hmm. sexy. So, and that's, that's, that's the whole thing, right? If you, if you're, if it's
1: hard for you to get past that, right. Then it's, you, you probably not going to be as successful as you can be because you are, you're, you're, in my case, I was always thinking about, um, the, the firm I really wanted to do that, you know, that's what I really wanted to do. Right. So, um, you know, I would be in times that I could be, you know, working on some marketing document or some type of new, you know, strategy, and I'll be focused on, you know, the market because that was my interest. So, um, it's, it's just, you know, it's one of those things, but I, I, I learned that about myself and, and, um it's I only thing I, I can say is that it's a it's it's eye-opening to learn about yourself
0: at an older age, yeah. You know? <laughs> well, and feedback is good. Feedback, you know, if we don't allow for ourselves to have feedback, then we can't get better. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. Um and and having that self-realization of saying, Man, it really bothered me of what people think of me. But quite frankly, people think negative things of you right now because you're in the in the finance realm i mean think about the occupy wall street movement of the early 2000s i mean there are people out there who genuinely believe that people like you and i are lucifer incarnate and that we cause all the issues in the world and i I 100% agree with you and i I, you know i get that as well right so
1: but it doesn't bother me because it's something i want to do right and um, and the, 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 cleaning industry taught me a lot. And I think there's a lot of amazing people. And I think you can make a lot of money in it. Um, it's, a, it's, you know, if it's people listening from Houston here, it's a, it's a number of different big firms that are probably making a lot of money here in the Houston area. So I don't want to knock it, it. I appreciate the, the, the service industry, I, you know, obviously doing the doing way is, 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 like a service and, um, so, but, and I appreciate it a lot from it. Like, for instance, I, I appreciate that everyone has a role, right? So, um, people who are, uh, working at, uh, McDonald's or, um, cleaning or, um, CPA or whatever, but everybody has a role and we need those people and they're all important. Right. So, and, you know, a lot of people think that someone who's, who manages money is, you know, is a, um, um. Is a hindrance to society, right? They don't provide any value, right? So, and I completely understand that. But, and when people think of that or say that to me, that's that's fine to me because I still love the concept of what I do. I still love what I am doing. I I don't have too many days that I wake up and don't want to, you know, be a part of the market. So, it's 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 a difference, I guess. If I didn't I didn't love the cleaning industry, so that's that's probably one of the reasons why it bothered me. Um, so much that it that it was looked down upon.
0: Yeah, it's well. I'll give I'll give you an example. I've heard of individuals. So for example, that are real estate investors, and mm-hmm. um, a couple of individuals in particular. You know, one of them, if you just looked at their investments, you would say, "Oh, this person's a slumlord." But then when you mm-hmm. dig deeper and you talk to them, and you say, "Hey, in this neighborhood in this city, you could actually uh, upgrade." these apartment complexes and within two and a half years you would get all your investment back and you'd make probably four hundred thousand dollars more a year why aren't you doing that and their response Mm -hmm. is because i've got several section eight single moms who've been living in these apartments for years and if i kick them out they've been priced out of the city and they've got nowhere to go so i can't upgrade the apartments Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. we're losing money to keep section eight single moms in their apartments yet somebody looking from the outside in would say they're a slumlord well, that's, uh, that's, that's,
1: that's interesting. Uh, it brings me to a thought is that um, I grew up on Section 8, and um, so I, have a, I definitely have a heart for, the, for that, um, that government program. Um, I was born in the south side of Chicago, and um, maybe a year or two before I was born, my family lived in the projects. And they moved out about a year or two before I was born. And my grandmother, she had a friend in San Diego, so she moved the whole family out to San Diego when I was about three or four. And we received, we stayed in a, a um, Salvation Army for a little bit, and then we, then my grandmother received Section Eight, and um, from that point on. We lived in a very middle class neighborhood, and I think that was one of the, um, the the best things that happened to me because I was able to experience so many different uh, people. I didn't, I wasn't stuck in an environment where everyone was was struggling. So, um, with that said, I have a you know I have a you know heart for Section Eight and think that it's a it's a place for it. So, landlords that are that provide it, I think it's a good thing.
0: Yeah, there's a need for it, and it's actually, quite frankly, in the real estate investment world, it's a specialty. Very few real estate investors will own, um, you know, what you would call the 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 you know Middle America multifamily units, the eight hundred to twelve hundred dollar a month rent at plus, and then own Section Eight as well. Just because Section Eight offers its own set of challenges, yeah, a lot of these folks will specialize in it
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and do a really freaking good job at it as well. Um, so, and, and it's interesting what you mentioned about, you know, being raised in the South side of Chicago. I mean, do you ever think back, you mentioned about South side of Chicago, then Salvation Army, then moving into a middle-class neighborhood. Do you ever think about how much moving into that middle-class neighborhood and being exposed to different types of people has impacted the way you view the world? I think it was one of the
1: major things, you know, if, uh, without a doubt, because I, you know, growing up in San Diego in a middle-class um, neighborhood and being able to interact with all these different races and um, playing sports. Um, I didn't mention that, you know, I did receive a um, a, um, a scholarship to go play college football. Um, but that, that all stemmed from just growing up in San Diego and being around a lot of different people and you know, being around people that you know, families that own their homes, people that are renting, people who are in the military, because you know, San, San, uh, San Diego is a military city. Um, it, I I think it it, it definitely um, um laid an awesome foundation for me. Um, and uh, my family's still in San Diego. I try to go back at least once a year, and it's it's uh it's still my favorite city I ever been to. It's <laughs> it's a. It's, uh...
0: I actually I don't know how humid is San Diego it's it's not at all I was about to say that's it so you're in Houston I'm in Nashville both cities are miserable in the summer yeah uh, um and San Diego is apparently just like paradise no doubt
1: it's a paradise meaning that you know it if you live near the the beach and I say near near the beach I'm not talking about like you know a few blocks from it. I'm you know I'm saying you know if you lived you know ten twelve uh 15 miles from it, you still see this, you still feel this breeze at night and you, and, and most people don't have air conditioning. And it's, it's just, it's just awesome. You can't live in Houston without air conditioning.
0: <laughs> no, 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 We, we would all just die. Uh, that, that'll, that'll be quite terrifying. Yeah. Um, so one other question I wanted to ask you is, I know you're married. I know you've got a um, 18 month old at the mm-hmm. house and Obviously that's a, that's a massive change in a man's Mm -hmm. life. Is there anything in particular you've learned about yourself, especially since you've become a father, because you are this A-type, intelligent, sophisticated individual. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I have this uh, human being that is dependent on me for uh, its existence. (laughs) So so it's a mindset shift. Anything, any epiphanies from that experience?
1: Um, Love, I mean, you think, you think you understand love until you have, um, at least, you know, for me, for a baby girl, it's been just insane how much I, am, um, I love her and how much I think about her all the time and think that, um, um you know, you just want her to be safe and things like that. And if she hasn't, if she hurts herself, it's, it feels, you know, really, um, you know, I, I hurt a lot for it when she, when she, when she hurts herself, I remember, um, so I'm the type that's not very emotional, but um, I haven't probably cried in, uh, since, you know, probably elementary or something, right? Early elementary. And um, my my daughter fell off the bed because I was um, not paying attention. And uh, it just it just crushed me. And it was the first time I cried and I don't, you know, like, you know, a long time. So that's when I realized that my love for her is is something I couldn't comprehend. Um so that's what that's what I that's what I realized is that you think you you think you, you know, you think you understand love and you think you, you know, you you can um you know, say wow, well, die for someone and so forth. Um but for me it's I I, I understand that now, if that makes sense.
0: That is awesome. That, that is really cool to hear. It just, and I've heard from new parents that sentiment over and over again. And I think it's especially important for us guys, because like you said, we don't, um, we don't express necessarily our emotions or allowed to feel certain emotions at times. And a child tends to be that catalyst that changes that entire mindset for a lot yes, of guys
1: yes so it's been a joy it's been a joy and i didn't i didn't i grew up in a single single uh parent household my just my mom so um i i i now understand more and how important it is to have you know a father figure around and so forth so i'm looking forward to influencing my daughter
0: and so many positive ways yeah that is awesome well i know um we're coming up on time here, so the question I always ask is, you know, if if O'Brien could go back to eighteen year old O'Brien, so wide eyed, bushy tailed, excited about life in the world, and you could tell yourself one thing knowing all that you know now and knowing all that you know about yourself now, uh, what would be that one piece of advice you would give yourself if you could go back to eighteen year old you? One piece of advice is a good question.
1: So the first thing that th- popped up in my head was learn about options right away. I didn't learn about options until later. But another thing that popped in my head, and probably the more appropriate thing, is is that um, learn to learn to enjoy the moment. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard for me at times to en- enjoy the moment and look back and say, "Man, that was a good time in life." Learn to enjoy when learn to enjoy the moment, so you can appreciate a good time when it's actually happening.
0: I love that. Learn to enjoy the moment. That's powerful. Well, I'm, uh, I'm glad we got to have this chat. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's been a joy. I will uh, make sure to obviously have a link to your website within the podcast. I'll share it on social media, all that good stuff. But obviously for folks listening as always millennial manhood cip or sorry millennial manhood.net and then millennial manhood cip at gmail.com if you've got people you want us to interview got us articles you want us to read any compliments constructive criticism keyword constructive don't just complain you got to offer a solution outside of that we will uh talk to you guys soon